All right, hello, 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 hello. It's Ethan Alexanian here again. Uh, yeah, the last time I was I did an interview without a show, it was with this with this man I'm talking to again today, and he's back. And this time I've actually got a proper introduction for him. And <laughs> how, how do you introduce a man who's done so much? So I'll, I'll take a whack at it. He's a broadcasting legend who started back in 1970 on Radio 1, and he's hosted shows like Sounds of the 70s, Old Grey Whistle Test, and now The Country Show with Bob Harris, which you can hear on Thursdays at 9pm on Radio 2, or on the BBC Sounds app or website anywhere around the world. He's been given an OBE, a Mojo Medal, CMA International Broadcaster of the Year Awards, and he's the man who taught me how to correctly pronounce the name of the DRAM label. Would you please give a warm welcome to Whispering Bob Harris? <laughs> Hello, Ethan. How are you doing? I, I'm doing grand today. How are you? Yeah, very good. We're both, um, uh, I mean, I got my second jab the other day. You just heard you're getting your first jab. So things, I mean, th this cliche of the light at the end of the tunnel is becoming a bit of a reality and it, it's not an oncoming train. Yeah. Well, just one step closer to not being in a pandemic. Yeah. So, right off, I, I kind of introduced you as Whispering Bob. Does it get annoying at all, having that be kind of your almost official title? No, absolutely the opposite. Um, I love it because it, it, it narrows it down quite considerably. Uh, you know, the, there are a lot of Bobs in the world, and... Um, it's interesting, actually, if you analyze the, the, the name Bob, generally, when you're watching films, if there's a sort of fairly kindly character, the chances are his name is Bob. <laughs> there's, there's, there's a nice sort of tone to it, but, but I mean, there are a lot of Bobs in the world. But once you go whispering Bob, it narrows it down very, very considerably. So I've always, you know, uh, I've always liked it, actually. I still do. Well, it's it's fitting that you know the kindly people with the name Bob, because you're legendarily one of the kindest people in the British entertainment business, and I know that firsthand because I've talked to you before. <laughs> um, actually, I've got another kind of question about that. So you you gained the reputation as Whispering Bob. Did did the soft spoken nature just come to you naturally, or was that something you had to work towards? Well, I started in radio and my whole ambition was to be in radio. I honestly didn't ever give any thought to the idea that perhaps I might finish up on television. Um, but I did. And I was, whereas with radio, I always felt completely comfortable on radio. I felt like I'd prepared myself all my life uh, to be in that studio behind that microphone. With television, I was literally starting to learn as I went along. You know, it's a, it's a big job to learn in front of a, a lot of people. And um, so to start with, I was even quite intimidated by being in a television studio and knowing that you've got, I don't know, a million of people watching you. Uh, and I, 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 I retreated back into myself a little bit. So it was partly that, but it was also the idea that I wanted to try and make television as um, intimate as radio can be, that very one-to-one. -one. So I encourage the idea, it's, it's, it's close, it's 
it's quiet, it's us, it's a club, it's, uh, you know. So there was a, a journalist uh, from The Melody Maker, which was one of the big uh, music papers in Britain at the time, who came to review, I think it was probably about the third or fourth edition of the programme that I presented. And he was very aware of the fact that, you know, even standing across the, the, a few yards away in the studio, he could hardly hear me. So when he wrote the piece, he described me as being whispering Bob Harris. And there we are. That was the moment. And it stuck ever since. So, and of course, the, the television program you're referring to is the legendary Old Grey Whistle Test, is it? Yes, it is. Yeah. How did you get the job on the Whistle Test? Because you'd been doing shows on Radio 1, like Sounds of the 70s, for maybe a year or two before that, correct? Mm, yeah. Well, I was co-founder. It was, you know, almost by accident, really. But I was co-founder of Time Out magazine uh, with Tony Elliott. Um, Tony got this idea for initially a one-off poster magazine for the underground in London, the counterculture, as we, we always thought of ourselves as being. And uh, there wasn't really anything that provided any real information about that world in London at the time. There were two much older magazines called Where to Go in London and What's On in London, but none, neither of them listed you know, what was happening at Middle Earth or, or, or UFO Club and Tottenham Court Road or anything like that, or where Pink Floyd were playing that night. So uh, we started that magazine to fulfill that demand, really. To, to It was a sort of, I don't know, meeting point of lots of strands of the counterculture at the time. And even actually when we got the magazine uh, established, the first offices we moved into were in Princedale Road in Holland Park in London. And um, there was there was even a little sort of mini counterculture there because we were a few doors down from Oz magazine, very famous and controversial magazine at the time. And um, um, the, the company Release, which was a, a, a sort of drug advice bureau uh, run by Caroline Kuhn, so they they were at 52. I think Oz were, was at 56. And we're at number 70, Princetown Road. And above us was a company called Black Hill Enterprises, who were the management company for Pink Floyd. And uh, so, you know, we saw a lot of uh, a lot of the band. We saw the band regularly sort of hanging out. And this was just in the last sort of few months of Sid Barrett being with the band and David Gilmore taking over. So it was really amazing thing you know to, to 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 kind of use journalism which i was doing as a bridge into the music industry and across into radio so okay so um as part of the sort of journalist uh side of my uh of what i was doing at the time i i got to fulfill a massive um ambition and i interviewed john peel very famous english dj at this time and um, when i think of Mark the classic Irwin. era of you know great yeah. British djs i think of you and i think of john peel and i also think of like kenny everett yes well john was john was on this station called radio london kenny was as well and john was doing this very late night show called the perfume garden the perfume which garden. was a you know it was a hippie freeform basically poetry bits letters 
um, you know, the incredible string band Donovan. Um, uh, it was it was a beautiful program, and I I I loved it, and I I loved listening to John. He was it was the first time I'd really heard anybody. I knew I wanted to DJ, but John was the guy who pressed all the buttons and who made it real for me. You know, that I could do that actually. You know, that if I were doing a program right now, I'd be doing what John does. So I really wanted to meet him, and I got to meet him, and we t- became friends. And um, he then began, obviously, led to learn from me my ambition to get on the radio. And he introduced me to a producer at the BBC called Jeff Griffin. Uh, who was producing some of John's shows. And there was a long lead into this, but eventually John put me onto the radio, sitting in for John. Um, when he went away on holiday, Jeff gave me four programs to just show what I could do, really. And that's what led to me getting a regular Sounds of the 70s program. So Mike Appleton, who was the producer of the Old Grey Whistle Test, um, the, the criteria that he was applying to the presentation of Whistle Test was he wanted a journalist who could broadcast because there's a lot of research involved with, you know, you're doing research on the band you're introducing, you're doing research on the um, uh, person you're interviewing, you're going to be writing your script yourself. So that was the combination you wanted, a journalist who could broadcast. And having started Time Out and done all that journalistic work and then found myself on Radio One, uh, I was that journalist who could broadcast. So when Richard Williams decided after the first series that he wanted to stop, Mike gave me a call and said, "Would well, I I'd like to do the show?" Very long answer to it. <laughs> I, I would take long was... answers any day of the week. I love <laughs> people want to hear you talk, Bob. <laughs> um, you, you mentioned his name, and I actually had a question about him. So I feel like this is a perfect way to kind of segue into that. One of the most interesting sessions he ever did for Sounds of the 70s, in my opinion, was never actually broadcast, if I'm not mistaken. The mythical now Sid Barrett did a spot on Sounds of the 70s. What was that experience like, uh, dealing with a you know later period Sid Barrett? Well, funnily enough, actually, then it was broadcast, and... Um... I'm here in my sort of workshop. Let me just see if I can I can show you. These are scripts and running orders and stuff from the past. And this whole idea of, wait, when was the last Sid Barrett broadcast came up just the other day. And I found the running order for it. Uh, whether I can go back straight to it, I'm not sure. I'm just see. Um, but... Uh, no, I was hoping I might be able to. Uh, no, the, this is the way the old uh, Sounds of the 70s running orders used to look. And um, you open it up, and who did I open the show with? Oh, Foghat, and then Dave Evans, and then Richard Thompson. That was on the. Uh, 26th of June, 1972. So I've got all these around me, and I looked up the Sid Barrett one, and he played, uh, I think it was three songs from an album that he was talking about, but I don't think the album ever came out. I think it was sort of that way around. But certainly, these were the very last things that Sid Barrett 
broadcast before it all sort of fell away, you know. So, yeah, if I could put my hand on it, I would, but I just can't find it, Ethan. But it was fascinating to find it, I must say. What do you remember about Sid from that time? Well, he was... Oh, he, he was very um, quiet, I think, in a world of his own. Uh, I think probably that's the, the best way to describe it. I mean, it was 50 years ago now, more actually, when I first met him in 68, so that's what, 53 years ago. And I remember he was sitting in reception at Black Hill Enterprises above us at Time Out, just sitting there, just sort of um, watching the world go by, very quiet. And uh, on the other occasions that I did see him, even when he came in to do the session for Sounds of the 70s, my one memory of it was that we were, everyone was sort of coaxing the music out of him. Do you know what I mean? It was yeah. Um, so, yeah. Well, the the interviews I've heard from Dave Gilmore talking about that period in his life, that seems to be a kind of reoccurring theme, having to coax the music out of him. Mm. Now, now on to a bit of a more a, f a more fun note. You're you're a big fan of the London American label, and I think that's yes. been well established. Yes. And um, last time you were on the show, you casually mentioned, uh, which has been one of the greatest moments of my show, the name drop of Robert Plant and the game you play with him. Guess the London yes. American catalog number. Yes. So, with that being said, I have prepared a mini version of this game, if you would like to play. Oh, God. Oh, my God. God. Okay. First one. From 1958, 45 HLD 8584. Oh, gosh. I can give an additional hint, if you would like. God. It was originally released in the United States on the Cadence label. So it's an Emily Brothers, Till I Kissed You. It is not. Problems. It is not the Everly Brothers. Oh, it's not the Everly Brothers. Well done, Cadence. Uh, gosh, who would it be then? It wouldn't, would it be Link Ray and Rumble? It would not be Link Ray and Rumble. Uh, uh, so then, who else was on? The Andrews Sisters. I'll give you a hint. It's a type of sweet. <laughs> it's, a, it's a type of sweet. Oh, God, Ethan, am I being completely dumb? The name of the song is Lollipop by the Cordettes. Um, the Cordettes, okay. Okay, th this one should might be a little easier. <laughs> Did I completely overshoot the runway with this game? <laughs> Let, let's try another one. Okay, 45 HLU 9149. God, I don't know this one either. So that would be, this would be about, this is 1960. It is yes. 1960. And this will be a bigger hint. It was originally released in the United States on the Monument label. Uh, so it's Roy Orbison. It is Roy Orbison. And I'm guessing I need the lonely. It's only the lonely. Did I okay. did I pick a predictable one? No, no, be pre be predictable. This is good. One more. Okay. <laughs> Forty five HLK nine three five eight. Well, that'll be stand by me. That would be stand by me, 
and what an interesting way to segue the show. Now, <laughs> last time I had you on, uh, you were the the song had just been released, and there was talk of an upcoming vinyl issue of the record. Ta-da! Ah, ta-da! Here it is. As well, I, I've got uh, a copy too. Yeah. What I do, actually, I don't know about you, Ethan, with the old singles, but I square them up in the uh, in the cover, so the label is square. So, so you look at it, and you you're not sort of doing this to read it. Do you oh, do don't the worry, same? I, I do that too. Yeah, yeah. It did was, you it, did I did you get a signed copy? I I unfortunately did not get a signed copy. Well, we'll have to see what we can do about that then. Oh. <laughs> because <laughs> you can't not have a signed copy i've got about three left so oh <laughs> email me your address afterwards and then we'll take it from there bob my day is getting better and better first out i find i'm getting the covid shot next whispering bob is trying to send me a signed thing <laughs> but I actually also had something. You were showing the the sounds of the seventies work orders and you know running order sheets. Uh, I I've seen on your online shop recently. Is it fair to say you've been digging through the archives? Yeah, but hence I'm sitting here surrounded by it all um, because we suddenly I've got this fantastic site now, which has been um, de- developed by a company called Three B Digital. Um, and uh, it's run by by brothers, uh, Alex and Jack, and they and I become really good friends. Alex and I, in particular, we we are on Zooms together a lot, and the work they put in to bring my site alive is just absolutely incredible. And for Alex, it's a bit of a labour of love because he he, you know, we first got in touch with him as a listener to my show. Um, it was a, a, he asked me to play a track at a certain time. This is ages ago, years ago. Um, and I think I heard from him first on, as a DM on Twitter with us. So I got a message saying, will you follow me? And I followed him and he got in touch to say, would I play this track? Which I did. It was, um, we, we, but both of us went down the, uh, uh, since I met you, baby road. And, um, he'd come up with a version of because i loved a version of that song by black joe lewis and i was playing it on my shows all the time and as a complete contrast to that he discovered a version by uh, dean martin uh which i also played so anyway that was the original contact between us and then much later he got in touch and said what's happened to your website it's disappeared and i said yeah the guy who was running it for me is retired now so he's sort of closed, basically kind of closed the site. My son Miles had, had done a, just a one page, almost sort of holding site. But Alex said that he would love to rebuild my site and reestablish the archive. And that's what he's done. He, he and his company spent months on it. Um, and it looks fabulous. And we decided to, I'd also had some archiving done on my side of things. And I was talking to um, a, a chap in England called Clive Tilsey, who's a soccer commentator. And he was beginning to sell what he called his commentary charts. 
the, 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 all the charts of the players and the stats and everything that he compiles before the start of the game. And I thought that's that's kind of like a playlist. It's it's uh, so. Alex said, "Why don't we open up a store?" And of course, we had Stand by Me. It was obviously important for us to have somewhere that people could go to to buy Stand by Me, and somewhere from where we could promote it. So, um, so we opened up the store, and um, I put some playlists in there. Some of these hand-written ones, Ethan. These, I, I think, the, the, it's kind of like history in real time. If you know That's what I mean. Incredible. But, yeah. Uh, this is when Tipex was a thing. Yeah. So these these running orders, we feel that they've got a value. And we felt in the same way that Clive feels about his commentary charts, that if you've got a date in your life um, and you want it marked in some way with a playlist or something from that anniversary, then, you know, we've, we've almost certainly got one from your date as it were so yeah so that was the idea of opening in the store and it's going really well now so well <laughs> you had mentioned earlier in the show uh talking about john peel's uh show on radio london and i was actually going to ask you um how do you feel that the pirate stations in the 60s have shaped modern radio as it is now profoundly you know, in, in a word, we wouldn't have probably taken the route we've taken without them. I'm not sure where we would be, really. But, um, you know, when the pirate radio stations started in the 60s, everything coincided, everything converged at that moment in 62, 3, 4, really. We were, we, we were finally coming out of the, the, the austerity of the post-war years and the 50s. You know, the 50s rock and roll was the first blast of sort of teenage energy um we hadn't seen anything like rock and roll before and so the, the, this this new generation started to emerge teenagers um with their own ideas their own identities and as we went into the 60s the sort of black and white 50s really did flourish into the color of the 60s it was amazing how it happened by the time we got to I don't know, 66, it felt to us in the UK that for a moment, at the very least, we were the centre of everything. We had such great music. Um, we were, we would, the fashion in London, um, the Mary Quants and people, the um, models, Jean Shrimpton, Twiggy, the films, Blow Up, the bands, um, specifically to London, you know, people like Eric Clapton with the Yardbirds, um, uh, the Rolling Stones, it, it, the Small Faces. It was an incredible um, moment. And um, so reflecting all of that um, with the pirate stations, they didn't have any kind of restriction on them at all. The, the, there was a big restriction on the BBC in terms of how much um, how many records it could play every day because the musicians union were very powerful and insisted that there was a huge amount of um, live material on the radio at that time. They could only play about, you know, an hour of recorded music a day on light entertainment. Yeah. Is that right? Yes. I mean, even when I started on Sounds of the 70s, um, the one hour show that I did, there was only 20 minutes needle time 
in allowed in that show at that time. It was good in so much as we then had a lot of sessions, so we were able to di discover and then play a lot of live music, which was great. Um, but overall, it was pretty inhibiting. And certainly, you know, 64, 65, when all the British bands had absolutely exploded onto the scene, the fact that the BBC was hardly really playing them. And what you would hear is awful dance band cover versions uh, of, I don't know, the Ticket to Ride by the Beatles or something. It was it. But the, the, the pirate radio stations didn't have any of those restrictions at all. And they were playing the hottest records, sometimes weeks before they first came out. You know, I remember hearing Substitute by The Who about a month before it came out. And um, you're hearing those records in real time. That excitement is happening around you in real time. It, it was incredible. So when um, the, the Marine Offences Act came in, that's what it was called, because the government, heavily lobbied by the general music industry, couldn't control the pirates. So eventually they shut them down. And um, the, the, the government felt that it had to offer something because now you know the whole idea of this incredible radio all the kids are listening to this these amazing radio stations radio london radio caroline so the bbc started radio one and a lot of the djs that were on the pirate ships uh when they came off the pirates went to radio one like tony, tony blackburn yeah 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 eventually johnny walker john john peel um uh, they all went to Radio 1. And although Radio 1 was still restricted by the, the limit on needle time, um, it represented a huge sea change for the BBC. And then it gradually became, you know, more the Radio 1 we know now. And that then obviously influenced all the other commercial radio stations that followed. So without the Pirates, I, you know, I'm, I'm not really sure where what direction radio in the UK would have taken. You mentioned their name, and typically what I, I normally host is a very Beatles-centric show, so I feel like mm. I should meet my normal quota for my listeners and ask you, when was the first time that you heard the Beatles? Um, well, literally when I first heard Let Me Do. I was living in Northampton. I mean, I wasn't living in London, and I wasn't in this, any kind of hip um situation I, I literally i was i was hearing stuff on the radio just like anybody else and um there was a, a great station called radio luxembourg that beamed in well you were you presented on radio luxembourg for a while i did a few years later yeah i did um i mean the signal came from a tower in the duchy of luxembourg right across europe and it, it, it would it would phase in and out at night uh, the, the reception was awful, but at least it was sort of back-to-back -back, um, uh, uh, pop music. But the first time I heard Love Me Do was when it went into the charts in what would it have been, October 62, and was played on a programme called Pick of the Pops. Uh, and the thing that struck me about it was that the, the harmonica on it, there was, there'd been a hit a bit earlier that year by Bruce Chanel called Hey Baby, and uh, the harmonica on Hey Baby and the harmonica on Love Me Do are so similar. The sound is almost identical. It wasn't until a bit later that I discovered that the Beatles um, had toured with, uh, uh, what's his name, 
uh, who had the big hit with it, not Gene Chandler. Um, oh, it'll come to me in a sec. Anyway, they'd, 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 they'd toured together. Uh, Bruce Chanel, that's who it was. Uh, funnily enough, Delbert McClinton was the harmonica player on Hey Baby. And Delbert McClinton is a very, uh, was, this is my cat Colby. Uh, Delbert McClinton is a very important figure these days in the uh, Americana scene in Nashville. Which, so, which, of course, that's that's the world you've been living in for yeah, the past one. Yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. Colby's not allowed on the table anymore because of all the memorabilia. And I, I had this horrible feeling of him coming in from outside with muddy paws and walking all over valuable running orders and scripts and stuff. But that's just how cats are. I know, I know. So this this brings us to the part of the show. It's always my least favorite where we have to say goodbye. Um, I, thank you so much, Bob, for coming on the show. Oh, well, as, as last time, Ethan, I, I've really enjoyed it. It's been great. I wish um, the weather would warm. What, what's the temperature where you are? Um, I think it might be, I think it might be above freezing today. Right. Where where are you exactly in that case? I am in Waterloo, Ontario, Canada. Right, right. So you must be north of Toronto. Just slightly south of Toronto, about an hour. Oh, okay. Right. Okay. So it's still that cold then? Yeah. It, it's been all right since spring started, but it's just we've had, uh, you know, quite a bit of cold lately. Yeah, yeah. Seems everywhere. Nashville's colder than normal. We are here, colder than normal, so... There you anyway. go. <laughs> <laughs> That's the thing about that, us, oh. us Brits. We love talking about the weather. Oh, us Canadians love it, too. It gives us a, an excuse to complain. Yeah, yeah. Is, is there anything no, else you'd great. like Thank to... Thank you very much, Ethan. Is there I, anything I really else you'd like it. to uh, you know, mention before we sign off? I'm just trying to think. Well, um, I think, okay, we should maybe do this even one more time in about uh, a month or so. Even, uh, even because, better. Yeah, because I've got an announcement to make. Uh, and so maybe we, we it brings with it some news that we could discuss next time round. Fabulous. <laughs> Does that mean I'm going to have round three with Bob Harris? It, it could well be, yes, if you're up for that. I, I have to say, though, uh, so many people have asked me about the interview we did back in the fall. Um, and hopefully you don't mind. I've been exclusively referring to you as my friend, Bob Harris. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. My my Oh, my buddy, Bob. Yeah, of course. Yeah. But uh, I've I've had a blast, Bob. Excellent, Ethan. Well, let's talk again soon. And meanwhile, I'll, I'll buzz the stand by me in the post to you, signed this time. Perfect. <laughs> All right. And to, to talk soon. Talk soon. And to everyone else out there, thank you for listening. You can go home now. <laughs>